Hello, everyone. I am really excited about today's podcast episode. It's going to be a good one. Back in 2020, I want to say like mid-2020, when COVID shut so many things down, virtually everything down, a lot of people lost their volunteer positions or internships or new jobs, and they felt that it really set them back in their career. At the time, I released a podcast called Three Tips for Aspiring Wildlife Biologists. And in this podcast, I gave some advice about how you can get experience on your own. Since then, I have been thinking about this a lot more And this is some of the advice that I give to some of the students that I work with. So I thought it would be great to give a whole episode on this, on things that you can do on your own. And this is true for both aspiring wildlife biologists, existing wildlife biologists. When I say wildlife biologists too, this also applies to ecology, conservation biology, the similar fields. And it also applies to non-professionals too. If you just want to to be a naturalist or, or a biologist on your own, you can. The advice will definitely help you out today. On this podcast, I am really about empowering people And I've learned over the years to take full responsibility for myself. So what that means is no matter what happens in the external world, there's always something you can do. And one of my favorite phrases is rather than dwell on what you can't do. So with COVID, so many of us dwelled on what we can't do. Change the question to be, what can I do? And there are so many things out there. We live in such an amazing time where information, education, teaching videos, it's all even courses. It's all free at our fingertips. So I'm going to talk to you in this podcast about how you can become a better biologist all on your own. These are my top seven favorite ways. I'm so excited to share this with you. So let's get started. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, an unconventional wildlife biologist who never fit the scientist stereotype. In this podcast, I share with you my insights as a scientist and offer you real talk on wildlife research, conservation, and advice on this unusual career. Being a wildlife biologist is not what you think it is. Join me to learn what science is really like and how to become the best version of yourself so you can thrive, effectively conserve nature, and enjoy this beautiful life we share with so many other beings. Let's get started. Here's my list of seven ways to become a better biologist. 
I made this list mostly in order of priorities. So the most important ones are going to be towards the top. Some of these are really difficult to rank because they're, they're kind of equally important, but I, I did the best that I can. And some of them are not as important. And you might be surprised at what is towards the top of the list and what is at the bottom of the list. So let's get started. The very first one that I have on there is reading scientific papers. This is how scientists primarily communicate and how science is done. So scientific papers, they are peer-reviewed papers in journals. And if you don't know what this means, I have a whole podcast episode on this. I believe it's called What is Science Really? And it takes you through the scientific process. Any of the things that I mentioned in today's podcast, I'll put in links in the show notes. You can just find the podcast tab on my blog at fancyscientist.com and check out this podcast episode. But this is how scientists communicate with each other. When you conduct a study, you publish it, you write about it, and you submit it to a journal, and it goes through a process of rejection, revisions, etc., until acceptance. And this is how other scientists learn about your research. So by being well-read or even just starting to read scientific journals, you are going to become a better biologist because you are going to gain familiarity with what's going on in the field. And this is a tip even, even for established biologists. We are constantly reading papers. In fact, I remember on Twitter several years ago, I think some people do it still, but there was a challenge to read a scientific paper a day. It was like hashtag 365 papers, I think. So the more well-versed you are with research and know what's going on in your field, the the better you will become in, in your field and in biology because you will know what other people are doing and then this will also help you with your ideas. Because you have such a familiarity of what's going on in the field, you'll be able to identify where gaps are in the research or just get inspired by creative projects and different approaches towards answering questions or different ways of doing things. Or perhaps a new study might reveal new questions. So this can give you ideas for how you want to direct your research. And if you're a, a young professional who has not yet started graduate school or their own research, this can give you ideas for doing a master's project or a PhD. And of course, if you're more established and you want to become a professor or some other sort of principal investigator, again, this can give you research ideas. You can honestly never get started too early on this. If you don't know how to do this, I created a video a while back, a while back about how to read peer-reviewed publications. You can look them up in Google Scholar. And so many publications are free nowadays. There are journals that are open access where all the articles are free. And if something's not free and you really want to read it, you can contact the author and a lot of times they'll send you the PDF of the paper for free. So this is something that I highly, highly recommend. And um, it's also really great to figure out what kind of research you want to do. A lot of, for going into graduate school, a lot of students or aspiring students, they think 
They think about school as being as the school being the main factor. So like what's a good what's a good graduate school to go to? Is this program good? And if you're doing research, it's not about the program. It's about who your professor is because your research will be based off of your professor's research. It'll be an extension of it. And I have a Facebook video on this as well that goes into that. So again, on the show notes, I'll link up to all these things. The next one is is similar to the first one. And actually, I love this tip and I didn't figure it out until later on. It is, oh, and I forgot to mention with the first part, okay, before I get into tip number two, I forgot to mention in the first part that the best papers to read, especially if you're starting off and you don't know your area well enough, are review papers. So review papers are, they re, they review topics, so they give a summary of what's going on in a particular area. And they tend to be, I mean, they can be broader, but they tend to be more more detailed. For instance, at one time I was working on a review paper on sociality among the different elephant species. So you're summarizing the existing literature that's already out there. Some review papers just do that. Others go deeper and they do a sort of analysis. So they might use, they might combine information from different data sets out there and analyze the data, or they might come up with their own analysis from findings from different papers. So I did that with my research on citizen science. I looked at different citizen science papers out there, and I scored the outcomes of the different projects and created my own, my own figures and, and results from the combined efforts of the paper. So these review papers are really amazing for getting a grasp at where the field is and then also who are the, the really important players in the field because those people will have their papers cited a lot throughout the review article. Tip number two is like a review paper on steroids. (laughs) So basically, these are review books. And it is so funny, but I did not know about these until I went to grad school and really until my comprehensive exams. And I was like, why didn't somebody introduce this to me a long time ago? So basically, it's they're basically kind of like a cross between a textbook and assigned to, or in a review. So I'll put a couple of examples in the show notes. But when I was studying for my comprehensive exam for my PhD, I found it really helpful to read about large topics because these these books, they summarized the research that was out there, current and classic research. And they include citations all throughout, so you become familiar with who has done really important studies in that field. But these books go deeper and broader, so they cover they cover a wider range of topics, and yeah, not so specific or narrow. So I read during my comprehensive exams, I read books on animal behavior, group behavior. I remember I read one called Reproductive Success, one on social networks. So these books were just so helpful in understanding really like the history of the topic. I love review papers and I love scientific papers, 
But the problem with them is even review papers they they don't give the they don't give the the history of the subject. So I really liked reading these books because they they give you some context of where this field started and then obviously the more recent and important studies going on. So actually even though you even though I ranked the the papers number one I would get started there because they're free and then once you figure out a topic that you want to learn more about then I would consider buying one of these review books they're super helpful number three this was also something I learned during my comprehensive exam and this is also helpful once you narrow down what kind of research you're interested in when you're first getting started maybe not as much but knowing who people are and what the research is about is really really important and I am terrible with names so honestly this was really difficult but during my comprehensive exam one of my committee members wanted me to know the major players in the type of work that I was doing. And I knew this for elephants and related species or not not related in terms of they're related to elephants, but their social structure was similar to elephants. So like orcas, for example. So I knew people who were looking at fission fusion social structures, and I was familiar with their work. But I wasn't familiar with the groundbreaking studies in animal behavior as a whole. So one of my committee members gave me a list of people, and he said, know who these people are and, and basically what they're famous for. And this was actually kind of difficult to do because these people had been in the field for such a long time and they had worked on so many different things. So it really was a lot of work. But when you're going through these scientific papers and you're reading these review papers and you keep seeing the same names pop up over and over again, start writing them down and get a sense of who these people are and what kind of research they do. This is Again, going to be super helpful when you're in the field, when you're talking to other scientists, because you're going to have the same background knowledge about the field as they do. So that is a super helpful tip that I wish I started way before my PhD. Okay, the next one is learning the program R. So the program R, if you've if you've listened to this podcast before, you have probably heard me talk about how important statistics is in wildlife biology. This is a science, so we need to analyze data. And with increased computing powers, we have so much data nowadays too with our with increased technology, like in camera traps, we can get thousands of images per camera trap. We have camera traps all over the world, so we have a lot of data. So statistics has become a lot more complex, and we use a program called R. The program is free. Most people use RStudio, actually, which is, I think pretty much everyone uses RStudio now, but it is basically a more user-friendly version of R. R is just like straight coding, whereas RStudio, there's some point and click. But you still need to code a lot in in RStudio, and it is a definite learning curve. So there are different ways that you can learn R on your own. And I have a blog post. It's called, I think it's called Best Statistics Books. And there's two books in there. So I guess when I should say learning R, I should say learn statistics too in general. 
So there's two statistics book in there that I highly recommend. One is Statistics for Terrified Biologists. I love that book. It's really great. If you don't know anything about statistics, or even if you know some things, but you just feel like you're not good at statistics, get that book. And the other one is the R book, which teaches you how to use R. But honestly, it has such a great background on statistics. I really loved it for learning statistics. I learned way more from these books than I did from any statistics class. But there are free ways to learn R out there too. So there is a program called Swirl. And in the statistics book blog post, I have links to Swirl at the bottom. And it teaches you how to use R by using R. It's really cool. It'll say like, you know, type this and then you'll type it and you'll be like, yay, you did it. Okay, now try typing this. It'll be like, it'll, it'll say like, like here's how you add an R and it'll tell you what to type. And of course, this is like super simple. So it starts off really easy and then it gets more and more complex. Another cool thing with R is that there's lots of free data sets out there. So you can get access to these data sets and play around with them. And there are different packages that go onto R. So when you're reading your scientific papers, look at what stats people are using in R. And, and, sometimes, and you can even download the data from the paper. A lot of papers now are required to provide data. So you can download the, the data from the, from the study. A lot of people are required to put their code on GitHub. You can get the code from GitHub and you can play around with it there. Any experience you can get is great. The other day, I recently came across um, a tweet too by a professor, a statistics professor, and she does free statistics videos on her YouTube channel. So, so I have added that to the blog post as well. So there's tons of free resources out there that can get you going with statistics. If you are going down any sort of research in this field, knowing statistics is huge. And if you decide to get your, your master's in a research route, you will definitely need statistics. A master's and above 100%, you will need statistics. So I highly recommend you get started now and do not be scared of it. Embrace it. It honestly can be fun. It's kind of like solving a puzzle. But you have to choose that perspective. I cried many, many a times over statistics. And it wasn't until I chose to see it as a challenge and I kind of took the pressure off myself that I started having a lot more fun with it. The next one, this is one you'll hear me say all the time in in all of my content, my YouTube, my podcast, um, my lives, gain an understanding of what the job market is like. So go to my website, fancyscientist.com, and search job tracker. Download that right now and use that spreadsheet, it's free, to start tracking jobs. Because if you want to go into this field, you got to know the nuances of the jobs that you are interested in. So although I'm giving you some broad ideas here, once you start identifying jobs that you're interested in, you can get more specific about the things that you need to learn. Perhaps grant writing is important for the jobs that, that you want to learn. And if so, like if you want to work for a nonprofit, grant writing is really important or fundraising is important. 
you can search the internet for fundraising courses or fundraising videos. There's so much content on YouTube. You can learn how to do anything on YouTube. So there's no excuses. You can be learning. And you can also reach out to people to, to volunteer to get that experience as well. So you can do this through the job tracker. I talk more thoroughly about the different job types and the job workplaces in my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology. And then I go really, really in depth with this in my course, The Successful Wildlife Professional. So if you're interested in those options, um, feel free to reach out and I will share the link with you. Okay, we are on number six. Number six is iNaturalist. And this is combined with knowing your local flora and fauna. Or knowing flora and fauna, doesn't matter if it's local or not. But actually, it's best to know it where you want to work. That, that I would say, is the most important part. But it probably makes the most sense to get started locally. So there's two, there's two apps, iNaturalist and Seek. Seek. S-E-E-K. I, I not, so iNaturalist is good for everything. And Seek is better for things that don't move as much. So Seek is really good for plants, for slow insects, slow animals. But how it basically works is, I'll describe Seek first. You hover your camera over the organ and it will identify it as you hover over it. It's so cool. So usually identifies the species. If it has trouble, it'll tell you where it stops identifying. And then it will tell you information about that organism. And you can take a picture and submit it to iNaturalist. So how this differs from iNaturalist is with iNaturalist, you take a picture separately and then you upload it to the app. I guess you can be an iNaturalist too and take a picture, but usually I take a picture quickly because I'm afraid the animal is, is going to go. And then with iNaturalist, you upload the photos to it and there's, there's machine learning that will automatically identify the organism for you. This seems to be less accurate than Seek, but maybe it's because with Seek you, it's, or it is because I'm sure with Seek you get to like, it tells you to like move around and get more dimensions if it's having a tough time recognizing it. And with iNaturalist, you upload it and then experts will make, will suggest their identifications on I recommend getting both because with Seek, you get the identifications right away. And with iNaturalist, there is a lot of bias towards different species. So some species get identified right away. If I upload a bird photo, it gets identified like five minutes later. If I upload an insect or plant, some of mine are still not identified at all. So Seek is a really great way to, to, to learn, especially your, your flora locally quickly. And you might be surprised that this is farther down the list. It's almost second to last because a lot of people have the impression that biologists are like naturalists where they just know everything out there. And to be honest, I am not good at identifications, especially, I mean, I'm good at mammal identifications, <laughs> let me say that, because I work with mammals, but I'm not good at plant identifications. So with using the job tracker and knowing what kind of jobs you want, you'll know what's important for you to identify. 
a lot of jobs, even wildlife jobs, it's really important to know how to ID vegetation because you will be doing surveys. So for example, if you're working for some sort of consulting agency, it's really common for them to do surveys of habitat for the presence of endangered species or how likely an endangered species is to live there. So endangered species, because they're endangered, there's not going to be that many of them. And because of animals, they might have cryptic animal behavior. And it might be really difficult to determine if they're there. So you might have to look at the habitat and see if it's suitable habitat for that species, which is sometimes enough to to. So so yeah, so knowing your local flora and fauna is going to help you regardless. But depending on the job, it can help you a lot. And if you've listened to my podcasts um, before, you'll know that the reason why I am a wildlife biologist, but I'm not the best with plants, is is because. Science is more about the research that you do than just knowing the names of things. That's that's not that's not what we do as as scientists. And again, you may need to know the names of a lot of plants to be able to do your research, but for me that wasn't the case and it was more about determining the answers using data and to come to conclusion from an unanswered question before posed by Yours truly. The last one, number seven, it's kind of similar to the unnaturalist one, but memorizing genus species names. And this one I actually think is least important, as you can tell, it's the last on the list. And I honestly am terrible at this. I am terrible at foreign languages. I just always have been. I, it just takes me a long time to to memorize foreign words like I in in school I could memorize other things but these new words it would just take me such a long time to learn so memorizing the Latin names for species didn't come naturally and when I went to undergraduate school I didn't have any mammalogy classes or any any taxonomic classes at all so I never studied the different species names and because I worked on on forest elephants and I worked on their social structure for my PhD, I didn't have to memorize a lot of different plant names at all. If I were looking at forest elephant diet, there is definitely a lot of researchers who've done that before. I shouldn't say a lot because forest elephants aren't that well studied. But there's been um, studies on that before. Forest elephants consume over 200 species of plants. So in that case, I would have known the the scientific names of the plants better. But I didn't have to know any of that for my research, so I never learned it. And again, I didn't need it for the science, but I definitely would be a better biologist if I had those genus species names memorized. And actually, that's something that I was working on a couple of years ago is, is just memorizing all of the mammal names in North America. And I fell off the wagon, so I am going to get back on again. I don't know when because I keep on taking on new projects, even though my two podcasts ago, I think I said about saying no, but I got invited to write children's books. I got write, invited to write another one to, to contribute to another one. So I said yes to that one. So hopefully it's something that I can add back. And I also want to work on my scientific manuscripts again. 
So long story short, I might have to add memorizing the animal names later on. But really what I did is I bought or I had my field guide for mammals of North America and I created a spreadsheet. This is so dorky. And every day I would write a different species in there and I would go go all the way um, down through all the taxonomic names. So I would include all of them and I would repeat that name in my head for that day to get myself familiar with those names. So there are my tips, my my seven tips for becoming a better biologist. If you can think of any tips that I might have missed, let me know. Remember, the internet is your friend. If you think that there is something important you need to know, Google it, look it up on YouTube. Chances are you don't need a fancy certificate. You don't need to pay money to learn it. But before before I end, I do want to say a caveat. Some jobs might care about having that certificate. So don't don't um, let that be the only reason why you or don't don't let this advice be the main guiding. Again, do the job tracker and do the research. But some jobs, they might not care about the certificate at all. I talked to somebody recently who got a GIS certificate because they thought it would help them make them more competitive for jobs, and it didn't. But also they realized that so much of the information that they learned in the course, actually they could have learned by just taking Esri's tutorials. That's the, that's the, the company that makes the GIS software we use, and it would have been cheaper for him to do that. So be creative, be resourceful, and look into these other options. There is so much out there. There is so much that people can help you with. Thank you guys so much for watching, and I hope you have a great day. Bye. Are you an aspiring or struggling wildlife biologist, ecologist, conservation biologist, or anyone interested in a career with wildlife? Join our community, the Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group. Based on my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, What It's Like and What You Need to Know, this Facebook group is designed to connect, support, and inspire future and current wildlife professionals or those who can't get a job. Come for daily affirmations to lead you to career success, job postings, and profiles of professionals in cool jobs. If you're struggling, feel stuck, lost, confused, or are just worried about this career, reach out to me at stephanie at fancyscientist.com to schedule a free clarity call. I've talked to over 100 aspiring wildlife professionals and those struggling to get a job, and they've told me what I also experienced. Degrees alone do not prepare you for wildlife careers. You need the right combination of experience, education, network, and skills to land the job you want. You also need to be able to convey that on a job application and sell yourself to the employer. I've looked at over 100 cover letters and interviewed graduates. I can tell you for sure they are selling themselves short, not listing all of their expertise and not marketing themselves effectively. I've talked to potential students who have dynamic personalities and sound so knowledgeable and experienced in person, but when I look at their resumes or CVs, none of that is reflected. If what you have been doing is not working, 
It's not all of a sudden going to start working. It's time to make a change. If you want to get your dream job in the fastest way possible, schedule a Zoom meeting with me today. No matter what stage of your career you are at, from high school student to graduate searching for jobs, I can help you. It is never too early or late to start. If this episode helped you or someone you know, make sure to tag me on Instagram at Fancy Scientist, at Fancy underscore Scientist, and share this podcast with your community to continue spreading the word and reach more people. Also, be sure to leave a review on iTunes to receive extra positive vibes and love from me. Plus, you'll be helping me reach even more people. Thank you so much for listening.